welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. I'm in Romans chapter 12, and we'll begin at verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. It reads, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. 
be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
What Erica is handing out is a two-page printout of three of the earliest creeds of the church. For the folks listening on the internet, I have a PDF of the creeds that I'm going to be talking about this morning, and I will post them on my blog, pastorjimmick.com, so that you can look at it or download it if you'd like it. Schedule-wise, uh, we're here this morning, for anybody who's confused about where you are, we're, we're here this morning. We're going to be here this Wednesday. Next Sunday, I will continue this morning's teaching, and then we're here the following Wednesday. The week after that is the conference in Gladeville. So that week, we will not be having Wednesday service. Come out to Gladeville. Come be part of the conference out there. Because the conference in Gladeville happens in early March each year, it's been our tradition that that Sunday before the conference, David Morris comes here and preaches for us. And I spoke to him two days ago, and that's the plan again this year. So two weeks from today, David Morris will be standing here. This morning, we are going to transition the teaching. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit for the last three weeks. And this morning, we will start talking about the Trinity proper, which is really what we've been building up to. From the very beginning of the Bible, God is spoken of in the plural Genesis 1-3, you only get three verses in before you read that God said, let there be light, and there was light. The word God there is Elohim. That Hebrew word is a plural word. It's one of the reasons that the translators translate phrases like, let us make man in our image, because God is a plurality. But get this right, even though I have just said that God is spoken of and speaks of himself in this plural language, we do not worship a plurality of gods. There is only one God. In fact, fundamental to the Hebrew religion is what is called the Shema. The Shema, that Hebrew word, simply means hear, pay attention. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Okay, now that's fundamental to our understanding and development of Trinitarian doctrine. The God of the Bible presents himself as a trinity, and that's hard for us to get a hold of. God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, God, who is the creator of all things and the definer of all things, gets to say what reality is. And his reality is whether you understand it or not. God says through Isaiah, 
My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You've heard me quote it many, many times because it's, again, essential in our understanding of God to know that God, Yahweh, has said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Now, we have been raised here in the Western world on what is known as Aristotelian logic. It's the logic of Aristotle. If you take any kind of logic classes, most of the class will be dedicated to pointing out logical fallacies, things that are not logical. Okay, so then we take mathematics, and mathematics are very, very logical. One plus one is two. And then you get to the Bible, and you read Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you think, okay, that's three are one, and that justifies all of our Aristotelian thinking because it's hard for us to conceive of something that is actually three in one. But that's what the Bible presents. That is how God presents himself. And so I say again, God, who is the subject matter expert on God, tells us that he is triune. He is three really difficult for us to get a hold of. Now, last week, I spent a lot of time concentrating on the person of the Holy Spirit. And I said to you that you were going to hear a lot in the coming weeks about personhood. The reason that I defined the personality and the personhood of the Holy Spirit last week was to introduce you to that idea of personality, personal being, that there's three persons in the Godhead. And yet those three persons are one in essence, and they are all equally God. We're just going to spend the next two Sundays at least digging into that fact, talking about what the Bible says and how it presents the Trinity, and we're just going to try to wrap our brains around a God who, let's admit it, is way beyond our ability to put in a box and define and say, okay, this is what he's got to be like because that's all I can imagine. He is way, way bigger and grander and majestic and eternal than you. And therefore, he gets to define himself. The doctrine of the Trinity. Let's start with this definition. It means that there is only one God, as you heard in the Shema. There is only one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or stated another way, God is one in essence and three in person. So these Basic definitions that I'm going to start with this morning express three essential, crucial truths that you have to hold on to to be truly biblically orthodox. Number one, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. And as we continue in this study, as we look at various Bible passages, you're going to see them each express individual personhood. 
each person is fully God. I'm going to demonstrate to you that the Bible says Yahweh is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And number three, there's only one God. God as God defines himself as three in one. And I don't care what that does to your logic or your mathematics. It is what God says about himself. And that's really definitional to Christianity. There are certain fundamental things that are just fundamental to Christianity. If you don't have those things, you don't have Christianity. And through the last 2,000 years of Christianity, there have been a lot of theories, ideas, movements that deny the Trinitarian nature of God. Fortunately, in the history of the church, those things have also been pointed out and deemed to be heresy. It is heretical to think of God as any other than Trinitarian. Now, I handed out a moment ago, well, actually, Erica handed out a moment ago, and you all have in your hands three early creeds from the church. These three early creeds are all statements of what the church collectively believes. This is the orthodox statement of faith in summary. And you'll notice that they are all structured around Trinitarian doctrine because they all exist for the purpose of replying to and demonstrating the falsehood of any anti-Trinitarian doctrine. And it's really easy to go off, to go astray when you're talking about Trinitarian doctrine. So that's why these creeds exist. I grew up as a young Lutheran boy. Every Sunday, we would recite, as a congregation, we would recite the Apostles' Creed. There's an early version of what later became this creed that is known as the Apostles' Creed. It was called the Old Roman Creed. And that was in use as early as the second century. So in the hundreds AD, very early on in Christian history, there was already this Roman creed. The earliest written form of that Roman creed is found in a letter that Marcellus of Ancyra wrote in Greek to Julius, who was then the Bishop of Rome. And that's around 341 AD. And about 50 years later, Tyrannius Rufinus wrote a commentary on that same creed in Latin. My point in giving you that little piece of history is to show you how early in the church these words began being recited by everyone who adopted and believed in the Christian faith. This was the fundamental summation of the Christian faith. In that letter that I mentioned from Tyrannius, he recited the viewpoint of the early church, which was that the apostles themselves wrote this creed together right after Pentecost before leaving Jerusalem to preach. And that's why the title now is known as the Apostles' Creed. 
And it's also mentioned about 390 by Ambrose, where he refers to the creed of the apostles, which the Church of Rome keeps and guards in its entirety. So when you say these words, these words go all the way back to the earliest Christian creed. And you will notice the Trinitarian nature of it. Now, as I mentioned, I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. I think it would be good this morning if we all recite the Apostles' Creed. You all have it in your hand. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Don't be put off by the word Catholic there. You'll notice the small c. What that means is the unified early church doctrine and belief. It was a reference to the whole of the believing church. And then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church adopted that name. But you're going to see that word Catholic in these original creeds. Now, after this period, the early period of the church, There was the development of Gnostic doctrine. Gnostic doctrine had at its core the notion that everything fleshly was essentially bad and evil. Only spiritual things were good. The word Gnostic or Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowing. The Gnostics believed that the knowledge they had was given to them directly from God. It was a spiritual superiority of knowledge that only the high initiates of Gnosticism could get a hold of. They had, of course, then difficulty with the idea of Jesus being fully fleshly and fully God at the same time. They had trouble with basic Trinitarian doctrine. And so they developed ideas like, okay, Jesus can be deity, but because the Bible says that he is the only begotten of God, they determined that he was created by God, that he was a created being. That's called Arianism. You may sometimes still hear that word to this day. Arianism is the idea that Jesus is a created being. By the way, that is still the common popular teaching of the Mormon church. So this is still very current 
And this is why it's necessary to get biblical Trinitarian doctrine correct, because there is faulty Trinitarian doctrine out there being promoted in the world. Well, if you turn the page over that had the Apostles' Creed on it, the next creed that you're going to see is the Nicene Creed. The first Council of Nicaea met in 325 AD, and during that particular conference, they came up with a Christian statement of faith, and it was later amplified a bit, and then it was adopted and authorized as a true expression of the faith during the Second Ecumenical Council that was held in Constantinople in 381. They convened for the purpose of settling contention about how God the Father and God the Son could be equal. And a priest named Arius challenged this belief of the equality of the Father and the Son, claiming that God created Jesus, and that then, as I mentioned, became Arianism. As you look through the Nicene Creed, one of the essential changes they made to the Apostles' Creed is that they point out that Jesus was begotten, not made. And that language is very important because with those two words, not made, they were replying to the fault of Arianism. And so the Nicene Creed, if you want to read along, or would you rather, let's say it all together. Now, growing up a Lutheran kid as I did, we used to say the Apostles' Creed every week, but then the first Sunday of every month, we had communion, and we would say the Nicene Creed. And nobody ever explained to me why, or what the difference was, or why we were doing this. As we read through the Nicene Creed, you'll see that yet again, the whole reason the Creed exists is to explain and define the Trinity. And part of that definition is the equality between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in order to reply to Gnostic monarchianism, which we will talk more about in a moment. So let's read the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Notice the difference between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. In the second paragraph, in defining Jesus, they said, There is one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father. So now they are defining what it means to be begotten of the Father before all ages. He is the one and only Son of God. But then they say that he is equal with God. He is God from God. He is light from light. True God from true God. And begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So in that creed, they are defining biblical orthodox Trinitarianism. Now, after that, there was another creed that we're not going to look at this morning called the Chalcedonian Creed that was adopted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., and it declares Christ's nature as fully God and fully man. That's what that particular creed was working to define. And so since it wasn't Trinitarian in its nature, we're not going to look at that. And then there was the very long creed that takes up the whole front and back of the second page that you have. It's known as the Athanasian Creed. Now, the creed that we just read... That creed was developed along with a priest from Alexandria named Athanasius. He was the secretary for Alexander who served as Alexandria's bishop during that whole Arian debate. Alexander strongly supported Jesus' co-divinity there at the Council of Nicaea, and then his views impacted this fellow Athanasius. So Athanasius became a staunch defender of the triunity of God and was constantly having to respond to the Gnostics, the Monarchians, those who would say that the Trinity was not a co-equality between three or that there wasn't a co-divinity between them. Athanasius was elected to be bishop there after Alexander's death. And the Athanasian Creed is attributed to Athanasius because of how he had this great reputation for being a fierce defender of the doctrine of the Trinity. So this creed was developed and then written after his death and then given his name. He was not directly responsible for the writing of this creed. The first records of the Athanasian Creed, which were written in Latin rather than Greek, appear during the 5th century. I gave you in your handout a copy of the Athanasian Creed. It's quite long, and it goes on about this is what all Orthodox people believe. 
The reason I gave it to you as a handout is so that you can take it home and read it. What I want you to recognize is in the development of these creeds over the course of hundreds of years, each creed was defining the Trinity. And in so doing, they were having to respond to all the false ideas of Trinitarian doctrine. Augustine himself once commented about the Trinity, in no other subject is error more dangerous. Because if you don't understand the Trinity correctly, you don't have genuine biblical Christianity. So in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious. So inquiring about it, looking into it, understanding, understanding the arguments against it, the arguments for it, he said it takes a lot of work to really comprehend Trinitarian nature. But then he said, but the discovery of that truth is so profitable that there's nothing more profitable than that. So the whole of the quote is, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. So that's why we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about it. Have you picked up yet that I'm still introducing? Because I am. But. Okay, so Augustine, logical guy. Augustine presented a logical argument to define the Trinity, and this is the way it goes. He laid it out in seven steps. And if you agree with these seven steps, you're going to end up being a biblical Christian Trinitarian. The first proposition is the Father is God. Number two, the Son is God. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God. Number four, the Father is not the Son. You've heard me use the phrase a couple times this morning, monarchianism. And what that means is God the Father is the only God, monarch, mono, single God, <coughs> ark, the first, the foremost, like archangel or like archetype. Okay, so monarchianism means that God is singular and he is the only all-powerful one, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit subsist in him, but they are not him. And so modalists go so far as to say, and by the way, there is a very prominent, well-known preacher out there right now. I won't, well, I can use his initials. His initials are TD. Um, <laughs> Jakes, T.D. Jakes, and the Potter's House are completely modalists. In other words, what they believe is the monarchian concept that there's only one God, and that singular God demonstrates himself as three different manifestations of himself. And he manifests himself as Jesus, but it's still the one person. And he manifests himself in the world as the Holy Spirit, but it's still just the one person. So that concept, that monarchian modalistic kind of thinking goes all the way back to as early as the Athanasian Creed and the early church 
And so this is why Augustine points out the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but then next, the Father is not the Son. That's important to remember. He is an individual person. Number five, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Number six, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Number seven, there's only one God. If you can say amen to those seven statements, then you are, in fact, an Orthodox Trinitarian. Here's the way that the Athanasian Creed puts it. They say, now this is the one and only Christian faith. They use the word Catholic. Now this is the Catholic faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Really important to remember that there is diversity in the Trinity because it is three people. And there is unity because it's one God. So the Athanasian Creed says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So this is, again, definitional to the God that we find in the Bible. And it's really important when talking about the Trinity, as you'll notice, it's really important that you use very specific language because all you have to do is get off one little bit and it's really easy to say, well, yeah, there's three persons in the Trinity and then somebody like your Muslim friends are going to say, well, then you are a polytheist. You worship three gods. And that's why it's important that we talk about diversity and unity. Because if you overemphasize the diversity, you end up with polytheism. If you overemphasize the unity, you end up with modalism. So you have to have both of them in balance to understand that we're talking about three persons who you're going to see have individual functions, and yet they are collectively, in essence, one God. And that does not contradict itself, despite what we think as a logical contradiction. The two key words to hold on to when you're talking about Trinitarian doctrine is essence and persons. You're going to hear me say that a lot. And I just did. And I have several times this morning. And I'm likely to again. When you read the word essence, when I say the word essence, when you hear essence, think godness. We're talking about the essence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That essential element that they all share with each other is that they are all God. So there is a godness to the three of them, and that is their essence. All three Persons of the Trinity share that same godness. In other words, 
One is not more God than the other. Sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, God the Father, he's utterly and completely God, but then the Son is subservient to him in some way, and the Holy Spirit subservient even more, and so they are lesser gods. It's important to recognize that they are all equal in their godness. One is not more God than the other, and none is more essentially divine than the others. When I say persons, think a particular individual distinct from the others. Those three persons are not three gods. As I keep saying, we're not polytheists. The three persons are three individuals who are one in essence, and the essence of them all is their godness. Okay, here's what we reject. Maybe this will help. We reject the idea of monarchianism, which I've already defined to some degree for you, which believes that only one person, mono, is actually God, and it maintains that the Son and the Spirit subsist in the divine essence as impersonal attributes that are not distinct and divine persons. We reject that. We reject modalism, which believes that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are different names for the very same God acting in different roles or different manifestations. I have heard well-meaning preachers use the example of water to try to describe the Trinity. But what they really end up describing is modalism. Because they say, well, water can be vapor, and it can be ice, and it can be liquid, but it's all water. And they think that explains the Trinity. But what they're saying is that's water in three different modes, so therefore God is modalistic. Don't use that example. Most examples and analogies of the Trinity fail. Just try to stick to what the Bible actually says. So we reject modalism. We reject Arianism because it denies the full deity of Christ. And we reject all forms of tritheism because that teaches that the three members of the Godhead are three distinct beings and therefore three distinct gods. We believe, as the Bible states, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are three individual persons who in essence are all collectively God. Does that make sense? Yep. Am I boring anybody? Absolutely not. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad for that one. The rest of you apparently sort of kind of. But Tom, look up John 16:10 if you would. Uh, I was going to have somebody look up and read John 3:16, but we probably all just kind of know that by heart. But if you would, Micah, look up John 3:16. Uh, Steve, if you would, look up John 14:26. And since you're sitting right there, Luann, would you look up Acts 2:33? And we're going to start seeing what the Bible has to say about Trinitarian doctrine, and I'm going to start proving the three persons, one essence of the Trinitarian God. 
The Bible indicates that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. For example, the Father sent the Son into the world. Read it, Micah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God the Father gave his only begotten Son. That's two persons. The Father gave the Son. That's persons. And he cannot be the same person as the Son, because after the Son finished his ministry, he then returned to the Father and spoke about his returning to the Father. If you would, please, Tom, read John 16.10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. I go to the Father. You here on earth will see me no longer because I'm going to the Father. That's individual personhood. He's not going back to himself. He wasn't praying to himself in the garden. He's going back to the personhood of the Father. And the Father and the Son collectively sent the Holy Spirit into the world. That's John 14, 26, Steve. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. You've got three persons in that statement. The Father will send the Spirit because of me. So you have individual personhood going on there. Acts 2.33, if you would, Luann. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So at the day of Pentecost, they were already talking Trinitarian doctrine because they said that Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand And because he went to the Father, they sent the Holy Spirit into the earth and was being manifest on the day of Pentecost. So immediately, as soon as you see the development of the church, as soon as you see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as soon as you see Christianity breaking out in the world, you always see Trinitarian language, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that is what... We know, if you want a big theological term that you can carry around, use it tomorrow in a sentence, impress your friends, that is known as the ontological trinity. Ontology is a branch of metaphysics that's concerned with the nature and the relations of being. So when you're talking about the trinity and the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit to each other, that they are individual and unity, that they are persons, and yet at the same time all divine, all equally in essence, they are all God, what you're dealing with there is ontology. You're talking about the nature of something. So when you hear theologians talk about the Trinity, sometimes they will yank out that phrase. They'll talk about the ontological Trinity. Next time you hear that phrase, you'll know what that means. They're talking about the essence of what makes the Trinity what it is and how the Bible describes it. I began this morning by saying that God determines what reality is. So our understanding of God has to be aligned with God's revelation of himself. And the way that he has revealed himself 
It says Father and Son and Spirit. So we have to say, okay, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if he says that they are individuals, we have to agree they are individuals. And if he says Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, we have to say, well, Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. And if that means 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, but also equals 1, then we have to go, okay, it's, it's both 3 and 1, because that's how God presents it. Even if we can't grasp it by human notions of logic, because we are limited by our flesh, by our fallen state. And so, of course, we can't grasp God in his fullness. We can't understand God the way God presents himself because we're not God. And you don't want a God like you. I don't want a God like Jeff. You don't want a God like us. You expect a God who is so far beyond us that he is beyond our grasp. And then he begins to define himself, and we just have to bow the knee and say, well, yes, sir, that's what you're like. Here, let me give you a couple of biblical Trinitarian examples, and we'll call it a morning. John 14, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit, very similar to what Steve just read for us. Jesus says, I, that's one person, will ask the Father, that's another person, and he will give you another helper, that's the third person, so that he may be with you forever. Then he defines that third person. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wait, what? I was was fine all the way up until that last statement. Jesus said, I'll go talk to the Father on your behalf. I'm going to ask the Father, and collectively we are going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you to yourself. That Holy Spirit is going to come and be an instructor. He's going to come alongside you, the parakletos. He's going to come and teach you. He's going to lead you into all truth. He is that spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. All of that is understandable. And then he says, I won't leave you by yourself. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wait, you just said you're going to the Father. How can you say... You will come to us because what you see is individual personhood between Father, Son, and Spirit and unity between Jesus and the Spirit. So he can say, when the Father sends you the Holy Spirit to abide with you and be in you, that is also me being with you. And by the way, he's going to remind you of everything I said. He's going to teach you the things that I said. And he's not going to talk about himself. He's not going to gain worship for himself. He's going to lead you back to me, and he's me. That's a tough one to get a hold of, and yet it's exactly what the Bible says. Next chapter of John, John 15, 26. When that Holy Spirit comes, when the Advocate comes, whom 
I will send you from the Father. There you go. There's your Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate, when he comes, know that I'm the one who sent him to you, and he's coming to you from the Father. Remember three weeks ago, four weeks ago, whatever it was, when we began talking about the Holy Spirit, we began in the book of Genesis that it was the Spirit of God that hovered above the earth and it was without form and void. And then their creation began. And I said that the Holy Spirit is creative and was there with God in the beginning making all things. John tells us that in that same moment, Jesus was there that he was there with God in the formation of all things, and nothing was made that was made without him. So there you go. you got Father, Son, and Spirit at the creation of the whole world. And then when the Spirit comes to inhabit the people that God chose before the foundation of the world, those selfsame people, Jesus came to the planet and died for them, and then they are sealed for all eternity by the Holy Spirit, you see the activity of Father, Son, and Spirit in the salvation of people. So the same Trinitarian God who created everything is the same Trinitarian God sustaining everything and the same Trinitarian God who will ultimately be glorified when we are all collectively there together worshiping him because they were all involved in your salvation. Who saved you? Well, God wrote your name down before the foundation of the world, so he did it. But who saved you? Well, Jesus died for me and paid my sin debt, so he saved me. Yeah, but who saved you? Well, the Holy Spirit sealed me for my day of redemption, convicted me of my sinfulness and my need of a Savior, and convinced me that I am sealed for all eternity because of the finished work of Christ because of the choosing of God. So who saved me? Well, Father, Son, Spirit, in unity. They collectively did it, and they individually all did their parts. So whenever you're talking about the Trinity, you have to talk about individuality, and you have to talk about unity. And you can't separate either of them, or you end up in error. When the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. There's individuality. Okay, so there's the Father. He's the one who's going to send the spirit. The spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. But when he comes, he's going to bear witness about me. And then you will bear witness also because you've been with me from the beginning, he says to his apostles. So you apostles can't even go out and start talking about me. You can't start spreading the gospel of my finished work until you are imbued with power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes to you who is sent from the Father as a result of my finished work, that's when you are able to go out and proclaim the gospel because it is the Spirit who is reminding you and bearing witness of everything that I said and did. Unity and individuality. Are you getting some sense of it? Luke 2, starting in verse 39, speaking of Jesus, it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, 
to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Look at the dramatic distinction in that prayer. Jesus said, I know I'm about to suffer. I know it's going to be hard. He prayed so earnestly that his sweat was like great drops of blood there in the garden. Even after having asked his apostles to stay awake and pray with him, they all fall asleep. He's on his own, praying in agony before the Father, and ends up saying, here's what I would will. What am I going to say? Take this cup away from me? For this purpose, I came here. And yet he would pray, I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be hard. And therefore, if you're willing, you could remove this cup from me. Jesus, because he was, in essence, God, could have gone back to heaven, not saved any of us, and he'd still be God. But he acquiesced his will to the will of the Father. That's individuality. And yet they were accomplishing the salvation of all the people who God chose before the foundation of the world. That's unity. So you always see them acting individually in a unified essence, always pushing forward the plan of God, always accomplishing everything that they collectively have determined before the foundation of the world that they are going to accomplish. Okay, one more, and then I'll let you go. John 14, 8. Philip is talking to Jesus. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Interesting question. Okay, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Show us God. Show us the Father. Show us Yahweh. Do that, and it is enough for us. Just just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long, and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because I've been with you for three years. And you want me now to show you the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One, unity, essence. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed individually to the Father, here's my will, but I acquiesce my will to your will. There you see distinction. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So you've seen the Father, and yet the words that I say to you are the words of the Father, because I don't speak 
by myself, of myself. I didn't create these ideas. These are eternal ideas from the Father that I am speaking to you. Okay, so there's individuality of purpose. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Can you follow that language? He had such unity with the Father that he said, you can pray to me and ask me anything. I'll go to the Father on your behalf. Now, really important concept. People in the Old Testament prayed to God. Remember the Shema. Our God is one God. And so they would pray to God. Now, here's Jesus saying, I'm one with the Father. You can now ask me. Ask me, and I'll go to the Father and between us, sending you the Holy Spirit, we will do for you the things that you pray about. Jesus just allowed himself to be prayed to because his concept of himself was that he himself was deity. Just like the angels don't allow anybody to worship them, Jesus accepted worship. Same way that the angels would say things like, don't get down in front of us. We're just fellow servants like you are. Worship God. Jesus went around saying, me, your whole eternity is determined by me. You can now pray to me. You can worship me. Why? Because I'm God. I'm one with the Father. So that's why I've been emphasizing so much this morning that if you don't get your Trinitarian doctrine right, you will end up in error because Jesus himself constantly demonstrated the distinction, the individuality, the personhood, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and at the same time said, and we're all one. We're all unified God. Next week, we will look at passages that say individually that Yahweh is God, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and I hope that this morning's introduction is sufficient that next week we'll be able to just hit the ground running. Because me personally, I'm, I'm done. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.